0: You're about to join Niels Kostrup-Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent, yet often overlooked, investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Richard Brennan and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets, through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Mark last week, where we discussed, among other things, the difference between long-sided and short-sided trades, as well as the difference between short-term and long-term volatility and how trend-following navigates some of these ...different parameters. Well, also, I would encourage you to listen to the midweek episode where this week I spoke to Jacob Shapiro, Roger Hurst... ...about both the current geopolitical landscape as well as how that translates into the global macro environment that we're experiencing at the moment. And, of course, not least, I hope you're enjoying our new CTA series where Alan and I have managed to line up... ...pretty much the decision makers at most of the largest CTAs firms in the world for some very meaningful conversations uh, on many of the most important topics. And I don't think that it's been done before in terms of rounding up all of these people more or less at the same time to give like a a snapshot of our industry at this point in time. So I hope you're enjoying this and appreciate uh, all the time and access we've been given from these true industry leaders so when you're done listening to Rich Night today, perhaps you will find some time to check out these different series. Rich, it is wonderful to be back with you. It's been a few weeks. You and I having an interesting session so far because you have technical audio issues. I have a cough, a lurking cough. So I hope despite our challenges today, people will uh, enjoy the content, which I think they will because it really is diving into some of the... Um, really important aspects of uh, of what we do but before we dive into all of that i have to i have to hear what it feels like enjoying hopefully still some nice warm summer weather in australia well
1: warm warm Niels, is is sort of a, an understatement we're we're just now entering a heat wave and uh, so our, our good neighbors across the tasman in new zealand just got slammed in the north island by a large cyclone which has done considerable damage over there, and uh, over here in Queensland, particularly, we're just about um, to enter a, you know, a, a heat wave for a, a large number of days. So it's hot over here now. It's very, very hot.
0: Yeah good to hear and um, we're also going to be uh, tackling some um, some questions that we have uh, that came in um so i think there'll be plenty of stuff to uh, to go through i thought that because uh, instead of our usual market wrap uh, rich because you are in the trenches and you uh, you know really do pay attention to uh, many of the things that are being released in our cta series i know we did this last time where we only had a couple of managers uh, that where we had released the episodes but I'd love to hear what your thoughts are so far uh, as we have navigated through many more of these managers and their differences, similarities. So um, why don't you talk a little bit about what 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 you've heard so far uh, from these uh, conversations?
1: So first of all, Niels, congratulations to the amazing work that you and Alan have put into this series. Um I, I must admit, I, I am addicted to this series and uh, as soon as they come out, I'm onto them. Um, so, uh, and, and you've had a large number of them, so I know that Alan and you probably have had many sleepless nights getting these out, but uh, they're fascinating. Uh, a, as we mentioned last time um, when we spoke, I, I think at that stage we'd only covered, um, it was at Man AHL and, and Harold with Trans trend. Uh, But subsequent to that now, we've heard from Campbell & Company, we've heard from uh, Roe Asset Management, Lynx, uh, we've heard from um, Aspect Capital with Marty Luke, and um, we've, of course, most recently had Graham Capital, which is the most recent one I've listened to. So, you know, it it certainly gave me an understanding of the, the dispersion that exists within our industry, uh, so it, as far as um, the philosophy regarding what trend is considered to be, uh, and as far as the, the methods deployed to target trend and the other methods deployed by many managers to target different arbitrage opportunities that they see, certainly gives this significant dispersion amongst the managers. Um, I've seen this myself in when I'm looking at the correlations between the managers that we've described here. But uh, when you listen to what they say, um, you can understand why there is a degree of dispersion. So the good thing is we're not all doing the same thing, uh, which I think is a very good thing for our industry. But, you know, of course, I've got my favourites amongst that group and uh, my favourites so far have been... Uh, Harold, of course, from Trans friend Who I, I love him simply because he's he he thinks out of the box, um, and he certainly keeps me on my toes when I have my interpretation of trend, and then he throws out this totally different interpretation, which uh, you know I haven't heard of before. Uh, it makes me sort of uh, recognise that uh, there's a very creative mind there in Harold, and I love his work. Uh, my my favorite so far really though, has been Marty Luke uh, with Aspect Capital, because he I, I noticed with the other managers they were they were not just strictly concentrating on trend. There was a lot of multi-strategy um, in, in a lot of their programs. The done, of course, was traditional trend, which I loved. but you know, uh, links, Ro. Uh, Campbell and Company, they were certainly going more into what I regard as a multi-strat area, which, uh, you know, is interesting. Uh, Of course, I'm a fan of 100% trend only. So when Marty started bringing the focus back to trend, I loved that. And there were certain things that he said uh, in the podcast, like trend being the medicine we all need. When he said that, it it really struck home to me. And I, I loved it. And because yeah, I've always regarded trend as something that is difficult psychologically to apply. It's not an easy game. It's the hardest game in town to apply psychologically because it goes against what your brain is telling you. Uh, but that is why I see there is this significant edge in trend. Uh, so when uh, Marty says, this is the medicine we all need, I'm just there shaking
0: my head in, in approval and nodding and saying, yes, totally agree with you. But uh, what do you think, Neil? Yeah no I mean you're absolutely right um there is definitely uh, and of course what we're what we're doing is we're talking to people who are a member of the CTA index not the trend index so of course there will be managers doing more things um I think and and we may come to this towards the end of our conversation today as well but I think that there is definitely a tendency where m- more firms maybe than I I wouldn't say suspected, but but there are definitely a lot of firms that uh, are in our peer group that you're right, have uh, essentially broadened out the strategy uh, to become more absolute return uh, rather than just trend, perhaps in recognition of the fact that they see more client demand for uh, for these type of strategies. So, so I, I agree with your observations. Um, I also, of course, liked Marty uh, Loic about his medicine um, an, an analogy, um, and analogy, uh, and and I actually liked my own Marty, so to speak, Marty Burkin from Don, saying when when asked about you know dynamic position sizing, which of course is often a, a point of discussion on the podcast, that even though we are using dynamic position sizing, he said there's absolutely nothing wrong with. Uh, also finding success in 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 doing it in a different way. So I actually thought that was very uh, very good of him to uh, to to confirm that. So, anyways, it has been interesting. There's a lot of uh, really good ones. I um, actually, uh, interestingly enough, one thing that did surprise me. You mentioned the the latest one that we just published um, uh, with Graham Capital. It did actually come back, come as a surprise to me that, given their size, which is multi billion dollar. That they are trading even fewer markets than we are at dawn. <laughs> so, so uh, that I thought was um, a surprise. And of course, his his argumentation for not necessarily believing in the fact that you have to trade, you know, m- many more markets to to deliver that. But let's leave that for now because that is in itself a uh, a topic that we often end up discussing. So I'm going to leave that um, for now. But I do appreciate your um, your insights before we jump into. Um, sort of a little bit of a trend following round here. Um, I, I take it despite the heat wave, the battleship is doing okay?
1: Yes, the battleship's doing fine, Neil. So really, though, um, January and February so far have managed to balance each other out. So I'm sitting at a break-even position. So January was slightly down, but February was slightly up. And notably in February, the thing that was driving that up was the orange juice trade. Um, so i uh, a magnificent trend in orange juice, which is sort of helping uh, the rest of the portfolio. But really, the these January and early February have been sort of what I regard as stagnation months. There's no clear trending opportunity really in the markets that I trade. But uh, it's it's just great to be able to, um, you know, um, survive and, um, and not sort of um, start building drawdowns. I'm always sort of I don't like building drawdowns, so if I can stagnate when there's no trends, that's better to me than a a situation where I experience um, a slight building drawdown.
0: Yeah, and of course, I mean, I know uh, you've talked about orange juice uh, on on the social media uh, a, a fair bit. It's not a market that I follow that closely. I think uh, larger managers probably can't really trade orange juice in any meaningful way anyways. But I, uh, of course, it's always interesting to uh, to see what's going on and some of these uh, outlier moves. But I, I do also notice that some people are coming up with creative ideas as to how they can actually get out of their March contract a little bit sooner than normal, so they can realize this profit, which is, of course, not strictly 100% systematic the way I understand it, but... Uh, Anyways, there's also a little bit of human element uh, into these things. Um, But I think generally speaking, you're right. Um, We've seen uh, a little bit of correction so far in January of this year, coming back now. And if I look at the numbers, pretty much all the uh, uh, CTA indices are coming back now uh, positively. So Beta 50 is up for the month of February. Softgen CTA index is up. For the month and even the trend index, I believe, and they're sort of hoovering around plus minus fifty basis points uh, uh, for the year, which is, you know, quite interesting uh, in a sense because there has been some quite large uh, moves both uh, in one and the other direction, so to speak, in some of the major asset classes like equities and bonds. So I think, generally speaking, after a strong year last year, I think actually CTAs and trend followers have come out uh, handling this kind um, of uncertainty pretty well frankly. So that's what we see going on here. All right, uh, let's move on. There's a question that came in from Jordan, and Jordan writes, uh, when entering into a position, do you set initial stop loss as a certain ATR or percent of equity and actually take the minimum... I don't know if he means divided by the maximum or just maximum, uh, between the initial stop and the highest or lowest price from the past X amount of days, or do you move the stop loss up to, say, X ATR movement? I'm not sure I fully understand the question uh, from Drew Jordan, um, but uh, I don't know if you did um, get the gist of it, um, Rich. Yeah,
1: look, at I, I, I didn't really take much out of it. I, I was... Um Look, I'll just explain what I do. So uh, with my approach, I will uh, adopt a, a set order to find dollar risk per trade at any point in time. And let's say that my realised balance um, of my equity at that particular point in time, so this is a realised balance, not the total equity, I, uh, I might say, let's risk um, 50 basis points or so 0.5% of that realised balance, which might translate to say $500 per trade. So once I know that figure of the $500 per trade, I then uh, define my stops using an ATR with a multiple. So uh, my ATR will look back 25 days. So the ATR I'm using is fairly short term, looking back over a look back of 25 days. It'll define the average true range over that 25 day period. And then we'll apply a multiple to it, like four or five times multiple to it to define the position where I place my stop. That um, distance from the entry at that point in time to that position of the stop must equal $500. So then that um, defines the position size that I apply for that particular entry. And I know that at entry, uh, I'm risking a defined um, dollar risk uh, of $500 at that maximum adverse excursion. And then what I'll tend to do is then I'll adopt the trailing um, stop from entry going forward, which um, might progressively adopt slightly looser pants. So where I'm using a 25-period ATR and a 5-multiple for my initial stop, I might allow uh, my trailing stop to um, be um, a bit um, less aggressive than that um, and um, open up the ability to breathe more. Or I might trail it at, say, 5 ATR. And so as uh, the profits are moving in our direction, the trailing stop moves behind that at a distance of 5 ATR, looking at the last 25 days, multiply by 5 period, look back, or
0: might be slightly looser pants. But that's how I do it. Yeah, no, I'm sure that's going to be uh, helpful f- um, for Jordan to uh, understand uh, the way you apply it for sure. A final question before we move into your topics. Uh, is: It's a question from Mark. Uh, Mark writes in. Um, thanks so much for your podcast I discovered Your Show last year when I started with trend following. I can't tell how much you, along with your co-host, have helped me clear my head in terms of how to approach the mysterical the, uh, art of trend following. So we appreciate that, Mark. I have one question that I would love uh, the group to clarify if possible, which is about lookbacks. In all the literature and discussions, the entry lookback period is always greater than Uh, than the exit look-back period, i.e. daily time frame, say, 100 uh, days in and 75 days out. But through my backtest, especially within the equities and commodity space, it seems it's the other way around. The exit periods are longer than the entry periods, say, for example, 100 in and 250 out, which have historically given the maximum profits. I would be very grateful if someone could please confirm if having the longer exit period over the entries is valid or if this approach is problematic and not robust enough thank you again for an amazing show so i mean he is right in 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 his observation that usually that's how we talk about these uh, uh breakout models at least what what are your what are your thoughts have you ever tried to to do it the other way around. Look, I,
1: I understand where Mark's coming from because I, I think you know when we talk about uh, these loose pants models, this is ideally what you know we're wanting. We're wanting um, a fairly tight initial stop um, with an exit point from that initial stop if price immediately goes against us on entry. But when we start building profits, we're prepared well. It, in my uh, models, I'm prepared to risk a bit more of that um, that current equity or that unrealised equity in striving for these outliers. So to allow uh, a greater degree of look back in your exits does make a degree of sense. The only thing I would say is that I'd just be aware of the fact that um, your initial stop and your trailing stop, I don't believe you want them to go backwards. What, what I mean there is that if price moves in your favour... I prefer a trailing stop that that moves you towards break-even and beyond as you're progressing into profits, rather than potentially going the other way and leaving yourself open for not only the complete sort of absence of profit on that trending move, but then a quite a significant loss on exit. So if you've got a very long look back for your exit, say a a two hundred day exit and your entry is a 100-day entry, that's really suggesting that you're going backwards, you're, you're allowing your your trend models to go backwards into lost territory by a 100 bars, or effectively of look back, which I think I want
0: to avoid with my
1: models. I hope that makes sense.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm also just thinking about the whole concept, and I'm wondering if you would even get very many trades if you if you uh, had that kind of configuration. Um, And maybe historically, depending on which markets uh, Mark is looking at, maybe there could be some arguments that because we've been in a big bull market, for example, for equities, maybe having such loose pants um, would be okay. But I'm also thinking that in in a different environment, that maybe it's not part of of the backtest, that that would hurt you much more than... um, you know, than than you would think. So, but anyway, the the point is, um, is just to do your testing, uh, get comfort uh, with whatever it is, ideally. Uh, and actually, we're going to talk about testing today, aren't we? So maybe maybe I should just shut up and and move straight into your points. Then Mark will get all the answers. Um, I hope because we are actually going to talk about kind of the quantitative analysis of price data. Um, in order to develop uh, the trading models that we have, and um, and and what we need to be aware of when we do these uh, tests and strategy selections, and you know how we avoid overfitting, but for but but actually also how we avoid underfitting, which uh, could be another issue when we apply these models to historical data. So, Rich has again very kindly prepared some um, you know, really good talking points where he will take us through this, um, you know, the difference between overfitting, underfitting, what it really means, some of the negative sim- symptoms we have of a strategy uh, when it's being developed, and how also backtesting, um, you know, we can slip into maybe, uh, you know, a process that doesn't make us aware of some of the challenges that uh, we may face later on. And if we don't understand these pitfalls, it's very hard to be successful uh, in our industry, and that's actually very interesting because um, we were recording yesterday with AQR. It's not released yet. I'm pretty sure that was one of the things we discussed as being, uh, or maybe may, may, I can't remember. If it was AQR or. Or maybe it was CFM which we recorded with yesterday as well two very interesting uh, managers and i think actually now now i think about it, it was from CFM and i think phil who uh, we spoke to said that that is actually one of the hardest thing in what they in, in their mind that that's really to um, uh, avoid the overfitting in their research process um so it is very timely rich that you have brought up this uh, these issues so uh, why don't I just let you dive into it and as usual I will do my very best to keep up with you. okay Niels
1: so what we're going to explore in this session uh, are the terms what overfit means and what underfit means and their importance to a quantitative modeler so, Overfit systems and underfit systems are negative systems arising from the way we use price data to develop or train our models um, and select the the, the models that we wish to apply in the future. Um, And this process can um, build into it this concept of overfitting or underfitting if we don't know what we're dealing with. So... Before we get deeper into the discussion, we probably need to take a small detour first and understand what we mean by signals in price data and what we mean by noise in a data series. So first to the signal. Uh, So when we analyse price data, uh, we're typically looking for some pattern in that data that positively correlates with the systems we use to extract profits from that signal, So the particular pattern, therefore, is referred to as a signal. So, for example, a trend follower, they're looking for a signal in the price data that represents a directionally trending price series or a divergent price series, either long or short. And they therefore deploy a simple trend following model to extract a profitable outcome from that price signal. So a mean reverter, on the other hand, they're looking for signals in the price data that comprise a repeating oscillation of price about an equilibrium or a convergent price series, and then they deploy a mean reverting model that is used to extract profit from that convergent price um, signal. So notice in this discussion we're having, uh, we are looking at a price uh, or a price pattern in the data and how the models we use positively correlate with that price pattern. So if we can successfully exploit the opportunities associated with a price signal, that means our systems are positively correlating with that price um, signal in the market data. If we find our models negatively correlate with that price pattern in the data, we find we have a loss. So this is where we start seeing that um, the, the interaction that occurs between how our systems interact with the price data creates this positively correlated outcome called a profitable trade. So the constraints in our system define the opportunities that we can extract from that, that, um, that price data. So let, let's look at a trend-following system. In a trend-following system, we have a, a single entry, an initial stop and a trailing stop, but no profit target. The initial stop and the trailing stop set set, uh, it, um, set aside constraints in that that model that when we apply that model to a price series that is a directionally trending price series, we see that we can exploit the opportunities provided that those constraints are aligned in the same direction as that, that um, directional trending price series. We can extract profits from that price series. So it's It's the correlation that exists between the systems and the price data. So what that means is that uh, when we apply models to price data, we need to, and this is where the term, we need to fit the models to the price data. So in this context, you can see that any successful trading system must be optimally fit to the signal it is targeting to generate optimal profits from that signal. So our definition of a price signal is intricately bound to the nature of the system we'll be using to extract that price opportunity. So that describes what signal is. So let's look at what noise is. So noise relates to all other price patterns that interfere with that primary signal that we are seeking in that price data through our system. So Many of us assume that noise relates to simply random price patterns that do not offer any enduring exploitability, Uh, but that's not strictly the case. So for a trend follower who is seeking a divergent price series, noise can also refer to not only a random pattern, but also a convergent price pattern. Hope that makes sense. So When we apply a trend-following model to a convergent price pattern, we experience a negative correlation between the trend-following model and the convergent price pattern. And this is experienced as a whipsaw, where that convergent price pattern interferes with the ability of our trend-following systems to extract the profit from that price pattern. However, when we apply a trend-following model to a divergent price pattern, we experience a positive correlation to produce a profitable result. So in a sense, a trend follower's desired signal is referred to as noise by a mean reverting trader and a mean reverter's price signal is referred to as noise by a trend following trader. Does that make sense? So uh, notice again how we're focusing on the relationship that exists between the patterns in the price data and the nature of the systems we deploy to extract opportunities from that price data. That's important, that connection that exists between them. So a trend follower uses a design solution in their models that seek to positively correlate with that trending price signal in the price data. So we apply this stop, this trailing stop, leave profit potential unbounded with the understanding that once these systems interact with a directionally trending price signal in the data, that the trend following models can then extract sufficient profit from that signal. So using optimally fit trend following models, we interrogate price data and we are looking, um, so when, when we're adopting a, a trend following model to price data, what we want to see in that price data is what we call a high signal to noise ratio. So what, in other words, what we're looking for is where the signals, which are the directionally trending price series, in that price data relate to these materially trending price series. And they're more frequent uh, relative to the background noise that's also in that price data. So having a high signal to noise ratio in the price data means that our trend following models then have significant opportunity to derive more profits than losses when exploiting that signal. So our When trend-following models basically are embedded in a noisy um, price data series with only a few signals, we must expect those trend-following models to perform poorly because in in that context, we are applying our trend-following models to a data series, which has a low signal to noise ratio. So therefore, we should expect our systems to underperform in there. It's not to say that the signal... So when we're talking about... Obviously, we're saying, all right, we're trying to target these signals in the price data. These signals are directionally trending price series. But what we're saying, we're saying that there's this concept called signals, and there's a concept called noise. Noise is anything that interferes with that signal. But then a lot of people say, well, the signal then, are we saying that that is, is correlated to our performance? Well, not necessarily, because that signal itself might be the result of a a random directionally trending price series, or it might be the result of of an enduring bias or an enduring bias of momentum in that price series that is a real trending price series that that can extend into the future. So even though we have a signal, we've got to be aware that that signal could be random or it could be real. So uh, the key point here is that uh, by What we're doing is if we are therefore only focusing on trading the signals in that price data, no signals could be random or real, what we are actually doing, however, is we are reducing the chance of our our systems to participate in the balance of price data that is noise. So what that's saying is that if I'm only focusing on the signals in that price data with my trend-following models... I am. The result of that is that I'm not participating in all of these other price patterns that are noise. And the consequence of that is that I find that my trade outcomes have a higher signal to noise ratio because I'm focusing only on the signals in that price data. This is a very important point. So Whilst, um, if I'm only focusing on the signals in that price data, whilst I meet, that means that I'm not, therefore, uh, using trend-following models to target noise in that price series. I'm only focusing on the signals in that price series. What that does is it's reducing your trade sample size because you're only exploiting those signals which are a directionally, you know, uh, material-trending price series. So uh, because I'm only focusing on the signals this method of exclusion of other price patterns actually eliminates a lot of that noise associated with those interfering price patterns to produce this higher signal-to-noise ratio in your trade outcome. So uh, this means that when you talk about uh, fitting your models to signals in that data, that process of fitting is, is focusing its intent on extracting the actual signals from that price data as opposed to the accompanying noise. So, we're getting there to what does overfit and underfit mean? So, uh, there was that really good movie that Carl Sagan uh, wrote about in his book Contact. Do you remember that, Niels? Uh, where I think it had Jodie Foster in it, where uh, she used these, um, these um, radio telescopes to basically search for extraterrestrial intelligence out there in the cosmos. And uh, she'd sit Did she there. find any white balloons? Well, she never find white balloons, but, you know, she'd sit there day after day listening to the background noise of uh, what the radio telescopes were, were putting through her, her headphones. And it would just be noise. But then on one night she was sitting there, she suddenly heard something that clearly could be distinguished from the background noise. It was this repeating signal. Of a significantly different amplitude and sine wave to the the accompanying noise. It was this continuous audible hiss in the background, and they found that when they extracted that signal from the noise, they found that it contained information about how to build uh, a new uh, technology that would allow them to visit the galaxies of this alien terrestrial, you know, this alien intelligence. And they gave them the the code through the signals and the data. So that's the way to look at signals and the noise. So. A signal is this this price pattern that we want to target. So a trend follower wants to target a trending price series in that price data. So only by focusing on that trending price series, you're excluding a large amount of alternative price patterns that are noise to that, that signal. But then when we isolate that signal uh, with our trend-following models, we've got to be aware that there still could be randomness in that signal. It could be a random materially direct directional price trend as opposed to a causative price trend that, uh, that ideally is what we're after. So uh, that, therefore, sort of covers a signal to noise. Now that we understand what we're dealing with there, what we can understand that uh, if there is no exploitable signal in that price data then our systems should immediately degrade or stagnate over time. Now, this is contrary to what many traders want. They want their models to be profitable all the time, but that's not the nature of a price series. So there is typically both signal and noise in a price series. So profitable outcomes over the long term can really only be generated when an enduring signal into the future is being exploited by our trading models. So this is important as it gives us a way to see whether our systems are overfit or not. In other words, if there are no trends in a price series, our systems should not be expected to produce profitable outcomes. And if they do produce profitable outcomes when there are no trending price signals in that data, we can be very suspect that those models are overfit to noise as opposed to signal. This is very important to understand. So this gives us a sort of a slight insight into a possible technique that we could deploy, which we'll refer to later as a visual method, which is a way to uh, identify the possibility that our, our trade outcomes are overfit to noise, but we'll get to that later. But we need to understand that it is exceedingly unlikely that we will produce profitable outcomes over the long term if we simply trade a noisy price series. Those that believe that we can derive long-term profits from a noisy price series are fooling themselves. So this is really uh, likened to the belief in perpetual motion machines. We must have that signal in the data to be able to derive sustainable outcomes in the long term as far as profits. Of course, there's always chance of being profitable from trading a noisy series. But we're after an enduring signal that is not simply a chance event or a luck event.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it's very interesting. And um, I think it kind of highlights a little bit uh, the complex task that we have, which will bring me to a point at the very end of this conversation, I think. Another dimension, which I don't know if you're going to come to, is, is this also that we talk about price series. But... Many managers, of course, you know, we actually apply the same rules across many, many different markets. So here we're dealing with multiple different price series that we also want to fit into a cloud of choices. Let's put it that way. We're not trying to find the parameters, uh, you know, uh, p- p- um, combination. Of course, we're trying to find a a cloud of different combinations that can, you know, essentially exploit the signal and hopefully leave the noise uh, out. Um, so to speak, I think historically, I think there's been um, experiments done by people like Tom Basso, maybe even David Harding who have talked about doing studies where they use random, say entries and then see whether they can make make that work uh, to some extent. Um, m- maybe not as good as uh, <laughs> a non-random entries. I don't know, but but how, how does that fit into to all of this uh, Rich? Yeah, so that Tom Basso experiment's a very interesting
1: one because it's often touted as being a random trend-following system being applied to the data, and lo and behold, we find that that random trend-following system works. Now, there is a bit of a caveat in there because it's not purely a random system. So if you could imagine, what, what Tom did in that experiment was, yes, he used a random entry But he also used an initial stop and a trailing stop, which was non-random. Now, the, the constraints applied by that initial stop and that trailing stop meant that that system, despite having that random entry, was actually the design of that system configured it to be able to capture asymmetry in a trending price series. So when he applied that random entry condition with an initial stop and a trailing stop, Lo and behold, we found it was profitable because the the actual design of the system itself was capable of
0: exploiting asymmetry in that price series.
1: Does that make sense? So once again, we've looked at this. Make, well, I mean,
0: yeah. uh, it makes sense to me. It doesn't mean it makes sense to everyone, but it, w- what what it does to me at least um, is to essentially highlight the fact that there are the two elements to some extent, right? There are the parameter uh choices that we that we end up with so to speak but there's an overriding thing as well which is the process and so even if you get one of these parameters not quite perfectly so to speak you can actually still make it work and and then i guess that's what the, the this this uh tombasso experiment proved to some extent so so i'd love for you to to explain that further if you want yeah
1: Once again, we're drawn to this. It's a relationship that exists between the patterns in the price data and the nature of the system as we deploy to extract that opportunity from that price data. So uh, with Tom Basso, we had the random entry, we had the initial stop and the trailing stop, but that, that asymmetrical configuration of that design, when overlaid and interacting with that price series, you could see that it still captures trends in that price series when they interact together. Um, so this is where it's not really a random outcome. It's a very excellent method to, to show how, uh, you know, Tom could use a, a random entry where people would think, oh, goodness, uh, surely the entry is important. Well, Rad, uh, yes, I actually believe the rad, the entry is very important, but I think what Tom showed or demonstrated with his model that... Uh, even with a random entry, even with a random entry, provided you had the necessary asymmetry in your models, it could profitably exploit opportunities in price data for trending trend following. Um, so what this is doing is it's saying, all right, we've got to look at what the system does and then what the price data does. So now we can talk about the terms overfitting, underfitting, or optimally fitting in this context. The, 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 but before we quite get there though, the ability of our trading, so the, the, to understand these terms of fitting, under fit, fitting, first we've got to be aware that the two factors at play with the performance of any training, trading strategy is the sum of two components. Firstly, the ability of your trading strategy to extract an edge from the market data. Now this relates to what we call the intrinsic power of the trend following system. So, how well does a trend following system do at capitalising a real edge that resides in the market data, which is possibly likely to repeat in the future? In other words, how optimally fit is that strategy to extract enduring signals from that market data? That's one component, but we've inevitably always got this other component, uh, which is associated with simply luck. The other component found in our performance, which is either good luck or bad luck. In other words, the performance results attributed to trading noise. Now it might be that our best re- returning uh, or best performing return streams once we've undertaken a backtest are actually the results of 100% luck. We don't know whether that best performing strategy is actually because of some causally real enduring signal in that data that we've successfully exploited or whether it's just been a random outcome. Of luck, so this is still a problem that exists. It's very hard to uh, when we come to the terms overfit, underfit, etc. It's still very hard to put our hands on the fundamental problem. How do we separate good luck from real signal? This is a real uh, issue here. When we talk about an an optimally fit trading system, so optimally fit trading system is where we preferentially respond to the signals in that price data and not respond to the noise in that price data. So ideally this is what any trend follower is looking for, having an optimally fit system. So we can be more confident that when we apply this system to future market data, then the majority of signals in that future market data will be exploited by our models. That's an optimally fit trading system. An overfit trading system is where we extract both signal and noise from that price series as it responds to those price patterns that simply lead to profitable outcomes. And we know that profitable outcomes can be a result of real signals or luck. So an overfit system does not discriminate in only extracting valid signals from that price series. It also responds to price patterns that simply lead to this profitable outcomes, which can be noise in that data series. And therefore, this is a problem we find in many data mining processes. So, uh, for example, if we ask our data mining process to look for outcomes in our backtesting that deliver, say, a minimum compound annual growth rate, a maximum drawdown, a minimum profit factor and then we allow that data mining process to find its own solution that meets those criteria, we inevitably find that it trains itself to the noise and the signal in that price data to achieve those objectives. That typically delivers what we call an overfit outcome. Yes, it achieves those objectives, but it's doing it by exploiting luck in the noise as well as possible signals. We never know which. So uh, we want to always avoid... The ability of our data mining to basically simply go out and forage by itself without any direction by us in defining how it should look for that signal in the price data. If we allow those data mining programs to do it themselves, they're going to bring back these solutions to us which are overfit. And what we find when we apply an overfit to a future um, uh, an overfit um, system to a future price series, it quickly degrades over time. Uh, there is no enduring edge in that trading system. So that's an overfit trading system. An underfit trading system, well, that's less of a sin. So an underfit model is one in which the trading system fails to optimally extract the signal from a price series and leaves a lot of the signal in that price series unexploited. So an underfit strategy does not necessarily degrade in the future But we are very uncertain in the the sort of efficiency of that model in extracting a sufficient edge in the future if markets are trending. So (coughs) despite the inefficiency of underfit systems, it's always preferable to have an underfit model as opposed to an overfit model when developing trend-following systems. And this is particularly relevant when we're talking about uh, targeting outliers, Niels, uh, which are unique in nature. So if we have a trading model that is specifically configured to extract opportunities from historic trends, uh, that might not be the best way to go, because the trends of the future might be different to the trends of the past. So we want to lean towards, especially in relation to outliers, which are anomalies, they're exotic, they're unique in nature, they are very rarely repeated in exact form or visual form or whatever. We want to actually attack them with an underfit model in preference to an overfit model, Um, because if we apply a model that is overfit to historical trends, we could find if the nature of those trends change in the future, we might be avoiding a lot of those future trends.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, it's uh, when you talk about these different types of of fitting, so to speak, um, it, it it reminds me kind of listening to the central banks at the moment about a hard landing, a soft landing, or <laughs> or no landing. I'm not sure that's a, a, a good analogy, but I guess it really does show you the challenge, so to speak. The other thing, and and I don't know if that's part of your what, what you want to explain um, in the next part. But I guess it also raises the question a little bit in terms of how do how do we how do we handle the data? I mean, the data in itself before we start applying our different types of rules and selections, et cetera, et cetera. uh, You know, if you start doing something to the data, um, that can also change the outcome significantly. I guess, and it's actually one of the things that I'm come to appreciate maybe a bit more as as we speak to a lot of these brand names in our industry that there is there's a lot of things there's a lot of moving parts and it's not just about you know buying the 50 day high or selling the 25 day low there's a lot of other things going on in <laughs> it's order complex. to be success exactly in order to be successful across so many different environments across so many different markets etc etc so anyways i didn't want to completely disrupt your flow so, so by all means no, continue, that, Rich.
1: that's right Niels. then what you were saying blows me away as well because it's not easy we know it's not easy there's lots of considerations how our well models work the price data we use how clean is that price data all of these things are uh, there are so many things involved um, and if you don't take them seriously uh, you can find that outcomes you get from your process of testing is totally invalid. It's so easy to do that. So we've just got to be aware of all of these things, particularly aware of what it means to have an overfit system because inevitably uh, when we undertake back tests and uh, we're looking for the best models uh, or the best performance results from that model, this is where another very important thing we need to consider comes into uh, this overfitting term. And this is a selection bias, so I'll just explain selection bias. So selection bias enters uh, a trading process as soon as we've got to select from competing alternatives, select outcomes from competing alternatives. So so I'll explain an example. So let's say we've got uh, two people like Joe and Sam, who are two, two traders, and I've asked them to create a, a trend-following model using the same 30-year historic data, and um but I've reserved the last five years of that historic data as unseen data, because what I'm going to do is once Joe and Sam come back to me with their models, I'm going to test their models on that unseen data with which they haven't trained their, their models on. They've never seen that data. This is unseen to them. So, you know, Joe and Sam, they they develop their trading training models, and then they come back to me, and then I apply that, that five years of unseen data to those models, and I find out that Sam's model uh, outperforms Joe's. Now, so far, that's fine. We've got Sam's model outperforming Joe's. So we currently have an unbiased result where we would conclude that by trading both models, Sam's model outperforms Joe's model. So we decide to use Sam's model going forward, not Joe's model. But as soon as we've made this decision, We've uh, introduced bias into the process, and this bias has come from the fact that we have we have uh, by deciding to trade Sam's model rather than Joe's model, we've introduced selection bias into the process. Which is uh, this is sort of different to an unbiased decision where we decide to trade both Sam and Joe's models. We've now decided to trade Sam's model, and this is where this bias comes into the process. So. The moment we introduce competition into a selection process and choose one strategy over another, we introduce selection bias. So it's possible to... It's impossible because we always have to select from alternative models. It's impossible to avoid this bias, but it's very important to be aware of this bias uh, because just the method of selection uh, could mean that we're actually selecting random models or non-random models i'll explain what i mean so we mentioned that the performance outcomes of our trading strategy can arise from two competing components says the outcome arising from the real edge that resides in the price data and the outcome arising from the noise in that price data whose whose result is a game of chance you win some you lose some but the problem with selection bias is that when we are presented with an alternative, so let's say we've got an array of, diff- of ten different return streams, and we choose the best return stream, we could be pro- choosing the random model or the, ra- the, the the result achieved from trading random noise, um, and and so and we miss therefore the. The real or the, or the models that are applicable to uh, the real causative drivers in that price series, we miss that entirely because we've chosen the most profitable outcome, the selection from alternatives. this selection bias has interfered with that process. So we need a way to eliminate the luck that exists in our performance results as as a, a profitable appealing equity curve may simply be the result of overfitting and not a result arising from extracting an enduring signal from the price data. So now we can talk about some of the
0: methods I deploy to reduce the chances of my models being overfit. Okay, cool. I mean, so just maybe to summarize, in, in, in one sense you're saying here that, okay, we we, we can do all our, our back tests, but it's not as easy as just saying, let's just pick the best uh, model. And and I will even take it a step further, Rich, and, I, and again, I don't want you... To to, to de- derail from from what you wanted to say but uh, but I think actually again in order to appreciate maybe the complexity of not all trend following methodologies because clearly we know some people who um try and keep it super simple and that's fine but when I uh, look at some of the stuff that I'm exposed to I'm I'm imagining uh with the large amount of Different parameter combinations that you can also enhance the overall outcome by combining selections that, not in themselves, are the best but are the best when they are combined. And maybe it's also kind of why you select different systems because one system in itself is not necessarily the best at all times, but when you combine them with different systems, they actually cre- create and form something that is stronger. Uh, so am I going in the right direction here? Or? Well, yeah, well you, you've given away
1: a bit of a clue that I use. So, uh, Look, I thought... I, I'll say the the methods that I use to reduce overfitting. uh, Now this is different to what a convergent trader uses because typically what um, you know conventional or traditional methods to reduce overfitting typically involve the use of Monte Carlo methods, walk forward methods. However, they're not appropriate for our trend following landscape because uh, Monte Carlo and walk forward are good for when uh, there are these consistent signals in the price series that are being exploited. And you want to see, for instance, in a walk-forward matrix that um, where you divide your price series up into intervals, you want to see solid performance in each of those intervals. And unfortunately, trend following doesn't apply uh, to that consistent sort of trends in each of those intervals. As we know, trends are sporadic you know, few in nature occur here, occur there or whatever. They don't line up in this sort of consistent repeating signal in the future. They're all over the place. So we need a different process to uh, ensure that our models aren't overfit. So, but the first thing that the principles I do, there's about five of them, but the first thing I do is insist on what I call a design first logic. So the application of a design first logic is essential for my system development and what i mean there is i apply these golden rules first and these um, golden rules are defined by logic as opposed to statistics so uh it the, the logic is used to define a system design that is first capable of exploiting the desired edge i'm seeking from that price data so in other words i'm seeking to exploit trends in that price series I therefore first want to apply design logic to develop these golden rules about a system that is capable of fully exploiting a trending price series. So this differs from the data mining processes where you assume no design principles from the outgo- um, get-go and you let your data mining uh you know, set to some objectives, we've already discussed this, uh, compound annual growth rate's got to be this, the drawdown's got to be this, the profit factor's got to be this. It goes away and it, it it iterates through lots of different possible design outcomes to come to a model that meets those criteria, but that model might be overfit, as we've talked about before. But when we are applying a design-first logic, we are immediately eliminating the chance of being uh, overfit from uh, this iteration process you see with typical um, traditional data mining methods, which would simply come up with a solution that have got no rhyme or reason. If we know the logic or the design logic that we want to use to extract that, um, that signal from the data or a trending price series for the data, we can then do a very important thing later on, which is what I call a visual mapping process between how our designs respond to that price data. We'll get to that soon. So... Uh, this this design first logic is the very first step of reducing my chances of having an overfit solution.
0: Yeah, which is something we I think we talk about quite a lot, which is really the philosophy or the kind of the yeah, the trend following uh, certain things we just wouldn't want not to do when we talk about trend following, you know, like, you know, cut your losers uh, losers short and stuff like exactly. that I Exactly. Mean, let your winners run that, things a like role. that.
1: Yes. And so, what, once, you know, once, you, once you've got those, those um, design first logical rules developed, like cut your losses short, let your profits run, that automatically says to you, right, uh, we need an initial stop, we need a trailing stop, or some form of mechanism. It's placing these design constraints immediately before we apply any form of statistical assessment about where those things should be placed. It's creating uh, what I call the, the constraint boundaries of your system, the logical constraint boundaries. So logic first, and then validate the statistical reasoning to that logic. So the second step I do to reduce my chances to have overfit models is I choose simple models with few parameters. In other words, loose pants models. So with models that only adopt the few parameters, they tend to be less over-optimized to historic market data. So when we apply simple trend-following models to historic market data, they have the ability to capture opportunities arising from a greater variation in possible trend form. If we have more, um, more complex trend-following models, they tend to be more prescriptive in nature and therefore they only attack a particular class of trend. But if we are applying simple design models that um, are loose pants, we can... Uh, attack a greater variety of different forms of trend. This is very important when it comes to targeting outliers, which has got a lot of different types of visual fall. But uh, having more precise models through the inclusion of more parameters in our trading models significantly reduces also the sample size of the signals that we can exploit from the market data. And, you know, more precise models therefore overfit to a particular form of signal and they lose their ability to exploit alternative patterns that can still arise in a trending price series, yet are missed by those prescriptive models. So we actually want to underfit to any single possible trend form to allow us to capture or optimally capture a great variety of different forms of trend form. And this therefore gives us a far larger sample size to work with by using simple models with few parameters, um and and so these simple models, these loose pants models, uh, give us high sample size and the ability to
0: attack a lot of different forms of directionally trending price series. Yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, as we sort of slowly start to wrap up uh, on the uh, on this, uh, how do you then use the visual mapping uh, in in kind of your decision making process in order to target these? the models that give you the best chance of finding outliers. Yes, so
1: imagine we get an outcome of, we've developed through our testing process, we've got 10 possible models that we want to consider. And then I'm looking at those models and I'm saying, which one am I going to consider? Now, most people use some form of statistical method to select their models. Which one has the best Ma ratio? Which one has the best compound annual growth rate? Which one has the best profit factor? I don't do that what i use is a visual mapping process. So I know that in those 10 models that I've got presented in front of me, some of them are going to be overfit. It's just, you can't avoid it. It's a horrible thing for quantitative models. It just pops up everywhere. So I know some of them are going to be overfit. But what I do to to select the best model, what I do is I map, I visually map the trade outcomes of that model. So, you know, when we develop an equity curve with um, our particular model, That equity curve, uh, what I do is I align the equity curve or the, the time series of that equity curve to the time series of the price data, which I've used for that model. And then I can see at each point or each step in that price series, how that equity curve is responding to each step in that price series. This is this visual mapping process where I'm mapping the trade performance of the equity curve against the price series. So then I can say, all right, well, there clearly is an outlier in that price series. And I look down immediately below to see how did I perform on that outlier. If I see a positively rising equity curve, I know that there is a correlated relationship between that outlier and that equity curve. Then what I do is I look to a period of price series, which is awful for a trend follower. There's no way you could develop prophecy. I then visually map that down to the performance of my equity curve. And if I see my equity curve going up when it should be stagnating or going down, that's overfit. That's a big strike. Uh, If I find that uh, the equity curve is stagnating or deteriorating, there's a tick. So as you can see, this process of visually mapping your trade performance against the equity curve, actually, you might get 10 ticks for one model. You might get eight ticks for another model. You might get nine ticks for another model. It's that visual mapping that makes me say, right, this one here is the least overfit because it correlates with how I know that I've designed my logic. So I've used my design first logic. I've used my simple parameters. I can tell in the price series when there's a trending price series. So there's a lot of logic entailed here, which avoids me from getting into a, a complicated statistical riddle trying to use performance metrics to say which one is the least overfit. I'm using, it, using a visual mapping process that ties back to the design logic that I used for my models. Does that make
0: sense? Yeah, no, it does make, it does make sense, Rich. Rich, are you able to summarise all of this uh, just because in, in the interest of time, uh, is there yes. anything? Yes, look, we, we, yeah.
1: I've only got two more steps to go. The, the, the next step I use uh, is a multi-market uh, process. So as you and I have talked about, Niels, we use a trend-following model, and our assumption is that that trend-following model should be applicable to all of the markets in our diversified portfolio. So we're saying that trend-following model should not be specifically selected to the characteristics of an individual market. We are looking for that trend-following model to have universal application across the entire portfolio. So what that does is we have a problem in our trend-following world when targeting outliers in that you know for a single market over a 30-year history, there might only be... Uh, yeah you know ten trades we've done, targeting the outliers in that price series. So that therefore is a very low sample size. So that's a real conundrum for us. How do we achieve a large sample size with our process to give us confidence that it's a valid process? Well, we use that model across all of our Uh, different data histories of our diversified portfolio, which therefore significantly increases the sample size. So if we trade in 60 markets, as you do, that's 60 times the 10 trades for a single market. On average, that's about 600 trades. You've upped the market sample, the data sample with your universal model. So what that does is it says, by using a multi-market testing approach, I'm uh, eliminating my chance to be overfit to a single market, and I am maximizing my chance to be fit to the characteristics of multi markets. So that is another way of ensuring that your model hasn't been overtrained to the characteristics of the data of a single market. It's saying that by having a universally applicable model over alternate market histories, this is going to be similar. Uh, when we look into the future, because in the future, we've got an infinite array of possible future paths. How do I represent this in a backtesting context by looking at history? Well, I present it with an array of alternate possible histories. In other words, the different markets in my diversified portfolio. I've got 60 of them. There's 60 alternative histories. If it passes all of them, I know that it's not going to be overfit. The very last thing, Neil, is we can wrap it up here. But the other thing is, a lot of people say, "Well, Richard, do you use out-of-sample data to do a final test on whether your models are overfit or not?" And I say, with a big flat grin, "No. I use the uh, I use the 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 factors that we've discussed on this podcast. Those four p- principal factors as a way to reduce the chances of being overfit because. Any, any separation of data into outer sample data, that means I'm losing valuable data. I want all of my data to be applied to my backtesting process. And the reason is that I am less concerned with the actual sample size itself as opposed to the need to ensure that your trend following models can operate across as many different market regimes as you can possibly muster. So to me, robustness of a trend following model is less about sample size and more about what exposure that trend following model has had to a variety of different possible market regimes. Uh, and so, you know, in summary, Niels, I use a design first logic. Uh, we ensure, or I ensure, that I adopt simple models with a few um, parameters. I use a visual mapping process. I use extensive multi-market testing and I'd use all the data. So that that sums up my process to reduce the propensity to have overfit systems. So there you go.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's super useful, uh, Rich. I know it's a little bit nerdy sometimes when you and I go into the uh, trenches here, but I actually think it is uh, very interesting. So uh, thanks for taking us through uh, your process. Um, and it is interesting in, in relation to uh, what, what I'm learning as well during this CTA series with Alan, Because, you know, we're talking to managers that, you know, from the outside can look seemingly similar uh, to some extent, maybe from an allocated point of view. But then you actually, once you dig into some of the questions, you you understand small, subtle differences in the questions that we discussed, uh, whether it's, you know, something as simple as the number of markets you want to trade, whether it's liquid versus alternative markets as well. Uh, the importance of um, volatility, the importance of correlations, and as we talked about earlier today, even down to the way they treat the the data before uh, before they let the models, um, you know, apply the rules. So I think that th- that's interesting. So when I take a step back from all of this, from from what I'm hearing, it's what's fascinating about this is it's I'm almost hearing two different conversations about trend following. I'm I'm hearing on, on Twitter, um, or I'm seeing on Twitter, often referred to trend following as being super easy, you know, one entry, one exit, one stop loss. But then when I hear you explain this, even though I know you apply to the simplicity of it, but when I hear you explain this, but also when, of course, when I speak to these firms who have, you know, done it for decades, who have been successful, who have delivered some of the best track records but also with significant amounts of money under management not to to um, minimize the um, you know the impact of of having a lot of money under management they're, they're certainly not describing trend following as being easy <laughs> so and i think this is also what come, came across just listening to your process uh, it, it is not easy and, and 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 i don't know if we're doing ourselves a little bit of a disservice sometimes to to make it sound like uh, it's easy, because I think the logic has been, and and I meet this to some extent when I have my conversations with investors and potential investors, because you know it's almost almost like they feel well, trend following this this, and some of them just refer to it as a factor or premium. That it's so easy that you shouldn't even really pay for it. It's almost like it should be free. Uh, of course, I couldn't disagree with that more. Um, and, um, and then, of course, we, we have our, our good friend from the replicator world, where it's kind of, oh, it's so easy that I can replicate and give you 90% of the gross returns at low cost. And, and now there's a new guy coming along saying, well, I can do twice that. I can just double the leverage and do it for, you know, half the price, even though I'm not even sure whether what the real price is in some of these uh, products. So, you know, I've even come across books that has recently been published where they conf- where they compare um, Dunn's track record to simple breakout systems and moving average you know systems, um, but where I feel when I see this, it's not really comparing apples to apples. I mean, you know, first of all, they're comparing you know some kind of backtest uh, with uh, with no fees to a manager who's who's done it. Forty plus years with fees. I don't think you can really do that, uh, frankly. And and also, I see some of the assumptions they put in where they say, "Oh, well, well, you know, in my model, I put two and a half dollar commission and and exchange fees um, because it's so cheap nowadays." Well, you know, it wasn't that cheap for forty years. It might have cost you twenty five dollars or fifty dollars twenty years ago to do this. How do you account for this? So, I guess just. You know, newsflash, some of some of this stuff is to me completely wrong and and kind of misleading the investors to believe that what we do is is simple and it's easy. and and a lot of this narrative that I come across, really, goes against my own experience for 30-plus years, um, that it's not easy. It requires some of the smartest and some extraordinary talented people, you know, from research to execution to deliver these above-average returns for decades in an ever-changing world. see I've got world. no hair on my head, Neil's Exactly. No, all of that yeah, loss exactly. of hair from my head is because it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy. It's not easy. You're absolutely right, Rich. And and I, I sometimes I wonder w- why we... Talk about it in those terms because it's not. Well, I could be completely wrong, of course, but it's not my experience, and it's not the experience it, it's of the not people I talk to either. either. Yeah, I worry that it's a
1: derogatory statement being put our ways to, to to tell you the honest truth. Where this ever came from, I don't know. But uh, you know, to refer to our process as simple as sort of like a you know a, a, a backhand sort of. Oh yes, that trend following very simple or whatever. But. You know, anyone who says that, and as soon as I say that, I know that they are not trend followers
0: because if they were trend followers, I'd know that it's not a simple exercise. So. Yeah, But it is fascinating because at the end of the day, at, and, and, and this is the thing, I mean, anyone can have their own opinion, but they can't have their own data, right? And the data tells us that this is one of the most, if not the most robust investment strategy out there. I don't want to take away any of the points that's coming up in the CTA series, but I think there were some very, very interesting insights uh, from Phil at CFM uh, about what they found when they look at CTA strategies, or maybe it was AQR Again, I sometimes get some of these mixed up, but one of those two talked about how they had looked at kind of the CTA space and the trend-specific space and to hear what they found and where the value comes from fascinating so i'll leave that as it is uh, for now because people really should listen to these conversations themselves and and you and i can pick uh, this up before we end up though rich we are coming to the point where i think soon we'll be able to publish uh, the january trend report but also it's a year end kind of stuff so we usually at year end uh, there's a few things that's happening uh, in terms of some of the indices we put together, and of course last year was uh, an interesting year. There's a lot of dispersion in the returns among managers. Some many managers did well, some completely surprised to the downside. But I think it's fair to say that um, that the uh, the process is coming along, and and uh, and that there are some uh, interesting findings um, in in some respect uh, to the to the new set of um, of indices that uh, we're going to publish soon.
1: Yes, Nils. I'm looking forward to that. I'm, I'm just waiting on uh, a bit more data to come in, and then I'll have uh, you know most of that that content out. So uh, we've we've got a change in in some of the Serenity selection um, uh, programs, uh, and some of the indexes have changed. SG Trend has had a small update. I, I wasn't able to get a B top fifty composition yet. I think they're a bit late in telling us who they've included in their index for 2023, but there should be some change there. Um, so I'm looking forward to having a look at that. And of course, you know, last year was a bit of a surprise to us with the performance of the Fort programs, which uh, uh, typically uh, they therefore get excluded from this process this year due to the poor performance they experienced last year, unfortunately, for fork. But um, yeah, it's an ex- exciting year ahead and looking forward to getting that report out.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. We'll we'll bring that out as, as soon as we can. Let's wrap up our conversation today. As always, Rich, thanks so much for all the preparation you put into this. And for those who uh, also appreciate all the hard work that goes into it, um, please go to iTunes, uh, Amazon, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast, uh, even to YouTube, if that's where you watch them, please uh, leave a rating and review. Uh, they really help, uh, not just uh, in, in our confidence that we're actually doing something that people find useful, um, but it certainly helps uh, more people find the podcast. Next week, although I did announce this last week and that was a mistake, but next week I am joined by Nick Baltus, uh, head of R&D over at Goldman Sachs. Uh, I just got the weeks confused here. So uh, looking forward to that. And of course, uh, this will be your chance if you would send us some questions uh, for him to answer. He's obviously written many articles uh, over the years on trend following, but also on many other things. So um, do send us some uh, questions uh, if you would like us to tackle them. I think that's it for now from Rich and me. Thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other.